Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. We're recording this event in the Swiss Alpine resort of Davos, where the great and sometimes good navigate mountains of snow to gather for the annual World Economic Forum. It's all about who's here. Kate Blanchett, Angela Merkel, Narendra Modi, Emmanuel Macron, as well as Stella McCartney, Christine Lagarde, Justin Trudeau. Well, you get the picture. And they're all here with the avowed mission of the World Economic Forum to make the world a better place. It's the brainchild of a visionary globalist called Klaus Schwab back when the Cold War was in full frost in the early 1970s. Since then, it's become the great global talking shop where entrepreneurs, politicians, economists and opinion formers gather with some stardust thrown in. This year's theme is creating a shared future in a fractured world. And from tonight, the US President Donald Trump will arrive and give the closing special address tomorrow. He'll be the first sitting president since Bill Clinton to address the gathering. He's also having private meetings and spreading that motto, America first. So this week we're asking, why is Donald Trump at Davos? And with me to unpack that is Zanny Minton Beddoes, our editor-in-chief. Hello, Zanny. Hello, Anne. And Patrick Fowles, our US business editor and Schumpeter columnist. Hello, Hi, Patrick. Um, hello. Zanny, why is Donald Trump coming to Davos, which in many ways stands for all the things he doesn't. <laughs> You're absolutely right. This time last year in his inauguration speech, he was basically railing against the global elite that were symptomatic of the evils of the world as he thought it. It's interesting. I think he's partly here to brag. You know, the world economy is in great shape. The US economy is in great shape. The stock markets are hitting record highs. I think he can't resist the idea of coming to tell these globalists, look, my America first has led, in his view, to this extraordinary boom, and he wants to show off. And I think beyond that, he may well start trying to convince the world that America first may not mean America alone. Patrick, can I just get a quick uh, take from you on why he feels it's a sort of business case to come to, to Davos? I don't know when he decided to come, but do you think it was when things really started to uptick in the American Possibly, and, and you know, the, one of the constituencies Donald Trump likes to listen to most is, is CEOs, uh, bankers, Wall Street guys, and of course that, that's sort of 99% of the population in Davos right now. It's sort of wall-to-wall carpeting of exactly that kind of group. But Zanny, as you, as you pointed out, there is a sort of conflict around this, what does America first now mean? And many in the liberal elites thought it was a kind of stridency and an inward-looking message, exactly the sort of thing uh, that Davos was set up uh, to rail against. But you seem to be suggesting that he's tweaking that. Well, we'll see. But I think understanding what Donald Trump is has always been quite a difficult uh, thing. Basically, I've thought of Donald Trump in terms of two Donald Trumps. There's Dark Donald, who's the populist who rails against the rest of the world, the protectionist, and then Trump Light. And Trump Light is basically a sort of latter-day Reagan figure who is trying to goose the economy with tax cuts and deregulation and so forth. And over the last year, we've had a kind of lesson in who is the real Donald Trump. And actually, the actions have been much more the latter. They've been much more deregulation, you know, 
tax reform being the only thing that he's really seriously got through. And actually, notwithstanding tariffs imposed on washing machines and solar panels this week, he's done much less of the serious protectionist stuff than people feared. Patrick, that view of a Trump light channeling lots of things that American business likes. How does that then sit with their worries about Trump and the sense that, that Trump might hold America back and that it wants to keep people out? I mean, is this a dissonance? Well, there's a huge dissonance. And actually, um, the typical CEO in America, you know, a year and a half ago, was really concerned about populism and uh, implicitly worried about Donald Trump. They've, they've learned to love the Trump show. And if you ask now, they will be very complimentary about deregulation, tax reform, as, as Annie's mentioned. And that, that partly explains the sense of optimism. But among investors, I think there is this nagging worry. How do you reconcile high profits, rising share prices, sort of capitalism rampant with the populist unrest and, and sense that the working man and woman is getting a bad deal. And it's the, the tension between those two things which uh, is very alive. You know, that's one dissonance that I've really noticed this week. There's an awful lot of, of talk still about, you know, how much of a threat is populism and a recognition at last that a lot of these underlying concerns people have haven't been dealt with. The other dissonance is what you might call, in, as journalists might say, between the front page and the, and the back half of the global newspaper, if you will. Because the back half has all been about, you know, record stock prices, economies doing extraordinarily well. But the front page is the political news, hasn't is, the geopolitical news is basically one of worry and concern. You know, think of North Korea, think of, you know, rising geopolitical tensions between the US and China. And, and Anne, as you, as you know, on our cover this week, uh, we have the next war, the growing threat of great power conflict. And it's a, it's a dramatic sounding title, but it's really worth reading. It's a very sober analysis of the future of war in our special report and a rather disconcerting analysis of the greater than people might think risks of, of something bad happening in North Korea. And how much does that sort of thinking, we know that our CEOs and we hope many others will be looking at that cover and, and taking it with them when they go on their planes, do they think, well, this is a particularly good time for the economy, but it may not last because there are other pressures? Or is there a sense that the economy can maybe cheer up America while all this sort of bad stuff is happening in the background and the bigger challenges that we've written about in the piece go unaddressed? Well, companies and investors are, are kind of notoriously bad at, at evaluating those kind of extreme tail risks, the possibility of a severe war. I think actually the prism which would really amplify, you know, conflict, say, North Korea to America's boardrooms is the trade relationship with China. I mean, it's so integral to how America's economy works, how big American companies get their goods, sell their goods, that if that becomes a source of real friction, if that relationship between America and China, um, the trading relationship breaks down, then suddenly the boardrooms will feel it. It's interesting coming after President Xi last year, isn't it? It's added that Donald Trump is coming, he'll take that main stage. Davos went a bit Xi crazy last year, didn't it? It was a speech that was intended to kind of introduce him on, on the international stage and sort of set himself up as a partial free trader. Do you think that's one thing that Donald Trump is reacting to? So I was in the room last year when President Xi gave his speech, and I remember it very well because these assembled global elites, the global businessmen, they were eating out of his hand. And one of them said to me afterwards, said, that is the speech that the American president should have given. It was a speech where Xi very carefully, I don't know who his speechwriter was, but it was brilliantly constructed, as you say, to make it sound as though China was going to be the upholder of the international order. China was the free trading country that was open and becoming ever more open. I will stick my neck out and I don't think there will be that many people tomorrow who will be so effusive about Donald Trump's speech. They may not be 
too critical, but I'd be surprised if Donald Trump comes and wows them as President Xi did last year. No doubt we'll hear something possibly provocative from President Trump on China, Patrick, but what's the underlying state of the trading relationship? We hear so many noises often, it's become so politicised. How optimistic or otherwise are US businesses about trade with China? Well, it's business as usual, and obviously what, what the administration tries to signal to American companies is they're capable of changing the relationship in America's favour through you know, tough guy tactics in, in the various rounds of talks between the US and China that have taken place in the last year. So I think the typical American boss actually quite likes that because it suggests the playing field might be tilted more in their favour. Again, what they're terrible at doing is trying to imagine or contemplate some kind of explosion or breakdown in the relationship, say, an imposition of tariffs or the seizure of foreign assets in China, something that really blows up. And I think, you know, no CEO is capable of really thinking about that in a very coherent way. I think that will be the real question for 2018. What is the geopolitical and economic relationship between the US and China going to look like? It's the one area where I think Trump could still revert to the dark Donald side. Just because we haven't seen anything very dramatic versus China yet doesn't mean to me that we won't necessarily. This is the single most important factor for the world economy, for global geopolitics looking forward. And we have a China that, since the 19th Party Congress, has made very clear that they are moving center stage in the world. We have America with an America first policy, where does that end up? Both in the economic sphere, does it lead to tension? Does it lead to worse than tension? And frankly, in the broader geopolitical sphere. That's the story of 2018. The CEOs and senior business people you've been talking to, Patrick, what would you say was their biggest worry? I, I was just going to share something from a, a breakfast that, that I did, which was about technological disruption. Isn't it all now, really, one way or the other? One of the, the worries that I was hearing was that the big uptick in the American economy might be briefer than many people think because there are going to have to be some quite substantial wage rises to recruit and keep very good people in the economy and that the workforce is going to end up being paid more. Very good, of course, if, if you're or a worker, but they, they could then take the shine off this bulge of, of coffers. Yeah, I would say that so the typical traditional incumbent company feels much more confident about technology now than they did a year ago. Most of them are beginning to invest uh, in, in all sorts of things like artificial intelligence and big data, and they feel like they're beginning to get a handle on it. They're, they're beginning to find a way to compete with Silicon Valley. What they're worried about is two things. First of all, as you point out, it's the duration of this boom. You know, it's, it's already roughly a decade into a recovery, which is very long by any historical standards. So maybe things peter out. And in the back of their minds, I think they're worried about, you know, the equity of the system. Is it really possible to have a massive profit boom and, you know, keep wages down without stoking another round of, of populism and, and a, a sort of even bigger backlash? Let's move on and look at Davos and Europe and where Donald Trump might fit into that. We've had a, a, a big roster of European leaders coming through and, and doing speeches, Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. Theresa May turning up, I think, just wants, to, wants not to, to be left behind out of that group. Do we think that this is changing the way that Europe views Donald Trump? Well, I think actually the, the way the cast of characters are appearing uh, in Davos this year gives you some sense of that. So 
the rock star of Europe and in some ways the rock star of the global elite right now is Emmanuel Macron. I, mean, I was outside the hall when he came to give his address. It was absolutely buzzing. It was as though 17 you know, top Hollywood people had arrived. Everyone desperate to get a picture of him. Everyone needing to see him. And he's quite short, as you know, so that wasn't so easy. He goes on stage. He speaks flawlessly, switching from English to French for a very long time. And someone said to me afterwards, it was a kind of a wonk fest. You know, he gives endless policy proposals. He is Davos man's, you know, poster boy, if you will. Angela Merkel comes in, leaves very quickly. She doesn't want to be here when Donald Trump arrives. She wants to keep well away from that. Theresa May apparently is here, but no one really pays much attention. And I think that's frankly symptomatic of, you know, where Britain stands in the international pecking order right now. In fairness, the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, was doing the, uh, the lunch speech. I think Theresa May just came to keep an eye on him, didn't she? But have you had very many delegates ask you, you know, what's the British Prime Minister going to talk about? I haven't had a single person ask me. Plenty of people speculating of what will Donald Trump say or what will Emmanuel Macron say. They're they're queuing up round the block for autographs. Um, (laughs) Patrick, that relationship with Europe. If I look back to last year, one of the big themes, the big worries, and it must be said, you know, Davos, like a lot of gatherings, it does sometimes get itself into a bit of a group thing. And one of the big worries last year was that Trump is going to cut us off. And yet, you know, he's coming this year. European leaders are here this year. Do you feel to that extent there was, you know, that fears were overdone? I think that's right. Although um, from most companies' point of view, the the centre of attention has changed a bit as, as Europe's economy has recovered profits have risen in Europe. And a lot of big European companies are thinking about how deep reform to the Eurozone might change their businesses. So I spoke to the boss of a a very big European bank yesterday, and that person was saying, if the Eurozone uh, consolidates, if, if it reforms how it operates, if it deepens the level of integration, it would be an opportunity for that bank to consolidate across Europe and, and buy companies in other countries. So when it comes to Europe, I think the focus of companies is actually, you know, the continent's doing a lot better. How do we adapt? Although, Patrick, to some degree, I have had the sense that European CEOs feel somewhat eclipsed. I mean, it is true that Europe's having a, an economic resurgence and Europeans feel better about it, but several people have pointed out to me that the real action is in China and the US right now and the big emerging economies. And there is a sense that Davos is in Europe and so there's lots of Europeans here, but I'm not sure that Europe is center stage in, in sort of anybody else's focus other than Europeans. I would agree with that, although I think the real pecking order in the corporate world is everyone is being eclipsed by tech. So, uh, you know, well, by if, robots. yeah, I mean, maybe ultimately the tech guys will be eclipsed by robots. But I think there's a sense among the American business world that the U.S. strangely has got the upper hand in the short term. So the Commerce Department imposed a huge fine on ZTE, which is a big telecoms company for sanctions busting. America has just blocked the takeover of MoneyGram, which is a financial company by Alibaba's parents. So there's a sort of sense that America is able to push China around a bit more than it used to be. But of course, in the longer term, whether that's really accurate is open yeah, to doubt. I'm not, I, I suspect that may be some false, <laughs> false hope there. And my sense from talking to CEOs, actually, and most delegates here is that this concern about 
the US-China relationship on many dimensions is one that is of, of sort of nagging medium-term importance. And if you think about it, it's trade, as you've said. And there, I suspect, and actually was interesting, one, one conversation yesterday, a Chinese delegate, not, not official delegate, was very vociferous that China hadn't done very much in retaliation this far. But if America thought that it was actually going to impose serious tariffs, there would be retaliation. But more broadly, if you think of the, the tech discussion, there this year, I've heard a lot of tech entrepreneurs and, t and tech industry people saying, you know, China is either caught up in AI or frankly even ahead of us. And so there's a sense of insecurity from the US tech sector that actually the Chinese, because they have you know, oodles of data, I mean, there's no sense of data privacy there. They have a government wanting to push artificial intelligence and things a lot, that they are in a very, very good position. And, and the tech company execs say, this is great, look what China can do, why can't the US government help us? But others are a bit more worried. Where does all of this leave NAFTA, though Justin Trudeau is also here, who I think was, the, it'd be fair to say, the pin-up last year, really, wasn't he? <laughs> I think Sandy's more taken with Emmanuel Macron this year, is that fair? Well, you have to kind of change your, your people every year. I don't know if poster boy every year. <laughs> I think NAFTA is actually going to be okay. I would be very surprised if Donald Trump pulls out of NAFTA for two reasons. Firstly, because I think the... A Mexican election and the risk of a populist president, López Obrador, in Mexico is something that has kind of percolated through to the White House that they don't want to be responsible for Venezuela on their southern border. But secondly, and more importantly, that I think he has been convinced that the real relationship that matters and the real country that's not playing by the rules is China. And so I'm less worried about something crazy happening on NAFTA. I think NAFTA will be renegotiated. Justin Trudeau pretty much said there were things that could be improved. China, again, is what worries me. You have the same mind on NAFTA, Patrick? Yeah, and again, I think on NAFTA, I'm not sure how closely Donald Trump follows Mexican politics, but he certainly, again, listens to, to boardrooms. And, and, you know, if there's anything Trump could do that would terrify the typical American company, it is messing with NAFTA. Yeah, I think the, 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 CEO would, the CEOs would go to him and say, do you really want the stock market to fall? And he doesn't want the stock market to fall. So that's a symbolic move that would freak markets out disproportionate to its economic effect. And I think that argument will work with him. I wondered when you're out and about in perhaps the more relaxed side of Davos is, is the evening where everyone shuffles around. Do you have a relaxed side of Davos? I'm, I'm waiting for it. But then again, I'm sitting here with my editor-in-chief, so I wouldn't confess to it. If I I'd hope be, you're I, not relaxing I, at all, ever. If I'd been up all night on the dance floor, I'm, I'm not going to reveal it in this particular podcast with Zanny sitting there. Um, but if we ever get out and about, uh, what are the interesting things, asides, moments that, that you've both had at the forum this year? I would pick the contrast of passing two people uh, in the street. Uh, one was Liam Fox, a, a British government minister, completely anonymous, surrounded by nobody stepping into the car. Uh, and that, I would contrast that by passing Shah Rukh Khan, Bollywood's biggest star, maybe the movie professional with the biggest number of followers in the world, absolutely mobbed walking down the street by uh, Indians and, and other people as well. That, that must have been a moment. Did you grab a picture? I, I did not and will regret it for the rest of my life. I, I think so. You've just, just lost, lost your job on, you on that one. You have a far more fun time than I had. <laughs> Come on, you must have done something fun. You must have had something fun on, on your you know, go actually, the, 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 the most, and this isn't, it's not so much amusing, at Davos, as you know, this year has had an unbelievable amount of snow. So on the first day, it took the people three times as long to get here as they thought they were. And this year, for me, the interesting thing is watching how Davos functions 
when there is masses of snow, even for Davos, uh, you have wonderful Swiss efficiency, where you know snow is moved. So last night I practically got run over by one of these you know incredibly efficient, very fast snow-moving machines in the middle of the night. And then watching people from all around the world in these rather inelegant heel cleats they give us so to make sure that we don't fall over. And there's a wonderful disconnect between basically the more glamorous people who would ordinarily never be seen in anything other than high heels and you know very 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 catwalk clothes negotiating Davos and the trade-offs that people make and the difficulties that people who don't make those trade-offs have actually walking so as I walk along the road late at night and I walk everywhere here I think we all do it's the most efficient way to get around just watching the quote-unquote globally neat navigate snowy roads on foot it's just permanent entertainment. Fortunately, you didn't get taken out by a snow truck, which would be a very Davos way to go <laughs> in the comic novel. I, I agree with that mixture of, of stardusts which are shuffling around, sometimes a little uncertainly among. Some people being more, perhaps more impressed by seeing a finance minister from a country that they're particularly targeting and ignoring I, Kate Blanchett. Absolutely. I was walking along the street yesterday. It was an American person next to me. And ahead of us, somebody slipped... And it was quite dangerous, actually. Slipped and slipped almost into the road. And there was that classic sense that this would never happen in America. There would have been a lawsuit. I think as we come towards the end, we might just take a a last look at Donald Trump arriving here in Davos and what that signals. Last week on the show, we talked about whether liberalism had failed or was failing. And I suppose the fact that Donald Trump is now clearly very ensconced in the presidency is is still a challenge and perhaps a growing one for liberalism. But Zani, do you see reasons to be optimistic about liberalism here in a place that is known and sometimes even derided for being the gathering of the liberal great and good? Well, you know, liberalism's greatest strength has always been its ability to reinvent itself in response to a changing world. And I think that the problem of the last few years, the problem when the kind of liberal internationalist consensus was unchallenged was a sense of complacency and a sense then as a result that there was a world economy that in many ways wasn't working for lots of people. I think now Davos has at least recognized the scale of the problem and you know Donald Trump is epitomizes what happens if you don't deal with it. And I think there is some sense that people have that more needs to be done. And actually, the world does need to change. So I've had conversations this week which have mentioned, you know, tax reform of a sort that makes the tax system more shifted towards wealth taxes, all kinds of things. We're not there yet in terms of the scale of shifts that are necessary. But I think liberalism is certainly not yet dead. And if this is the center of the global liberal elite, they are beginning to recognize that things need to change. Liberalism not dead here at Davos and beyond just perhaps resting like Monty Python's parrot? Or do you think that this week will send people away in good heart? Well, I think there's a sort of sense of how do you make capitalism softer, nicer? Maybe that's by regulating tech. Maybe it's by companies paying higher wages, taking more interest in, in society. And yet we are going to have Donald Trump appearing who, who probably has to speak to two audiences simultaneously. One is the global elite gathered here and he may want to placate them, flatter them even. And yet there's his audience, his base back home, who probably wants a show of defiance or almost arrogant tap of the hat uh, towards the global elite and we may find his speech um, comes in two halves. Well we're going to be bringing you reaction from Davos to Trump's speech on Friday afternoon. Thank you very much Zanny Minton-Beddows, Editor-in-Chief of The Economist and Patrick Files, US Business Editor and Schumpeter Columnist. 
his secret is out. What are your thoughts? We want to know what you think about Donald Trump a year on and your perspective on him attending the World Economic Forum. We're on email radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. From Davos, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 